chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we, give our, we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two men of two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men out that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, if this was the end of Saul's story, it'd be great, wouldn't it? That's a note to go out on. That's a king, right? That's how he ought to act. That's the kind of work he should be doing. Well, before we get too far into the story, let's remember this is not the end of Saul's story. And in fact, his words, there will be no one put to death this day because the Lord has worked salvation in Israel, are going to be very important when we come to an instance of his son bringing salvation to Israel and an oath that Saul made concerning eating that day. Interesting little foreshadow, I think. Our uh, title this morning is Unity and Renewal. If it's not immediately obvious, this first section of our passage this morning, going from verse 1 to 11, is indeed a story of God's salvation through his chosen king, Saul. 
But it's interesting what Saul actually does that brings about that salvation and how that has to do with unity. Then, of course, the second part of our passage, starting at verse 12 and going to verse 15, is this renewal of the kingdom. So we'll see in a moment how these two things go together. I mentioned earlier that I got to go to a pastor's conference last week. That is the highlight of my year in so many ways, going to this conference. And when COVID happened and it didn't happen for two years, I was pretty bummed out. But I got to go again this year. And the two things that are the most exciting for me coming to that conference is sitting under exceptional preaching and singing with a bunch of pastors. 2,500 of them exactly, or roundabout rather. And the singing and the preaching is just so good that you wonder why does this have to be a pastor's conference in the first place? Why can't this just be something that everybody comes to? So naturally, I snuck my wife into the conference on the first night. I figured I had heard that perhaps there were opportunities for people outside the conference to join in for some of the main speakers. And I thought, I don't think anybody will say anything if I sneak my wife in. And if anybody does say anything, the plan was that she would just say, hello, Pastor Sarah, nice to meet you. (laughs) Which wouldn't go over very well in a room full of complimentarians. But... I brought her in. I, had, I, just, I told her, you've got to come. You've got to sing. You've got to hear this preacher. You've got to be a part of what's going on here. And throughout those three days that I was there, maybe even some of you got some videos that I sent of this sea of men singing this you know, bass and very low-noted hymns and all these things. It was an amazing experience. It, it was, in a lot of ways, what we experience like a cappella Sundays, Right? Um, but, but there's something special about being in this large room, of course. If it is just simply the physical hearing and experience of voices being left together, it's not exactly what we're getting at with our passage. But if it is, in fact, what I had experienced multiple times in meeting so many different pastors from around the world, in fact, even um, exotic places like Canada I met a pastor from, um, what I found was a unity in the gospel that made that singing all the sweeter. To know that particularly in this role of pastoring that I'm not alone, there are other guys doing this too. It's always such an encouragement to me. So I say that in one sense, again, to thank you again for allowing me, releasing me to that um, week, but also because I think it is in one sense a picture of what is to be found in this passage. The unity of God's people together. Now, the unity that God's word shows us is not meant to be an emotional kumbaya experience. And I think this is one of the best passages to highlight that. Saul did not say, hey everybody, we're fighting, we need to just get along. Can we all link arms and just sway in a circle for a little while? That's not at all what happens. Jabesh Gilead is under threat of the Ammonites. And Saul unifies the people of God in order to save the people of God. If we could, I thought I had the clicker up here, but I don't see it. Is it up here? Does somebody know more than me? Is it not up here? I'll pretend to click, and Brian, would you click when my thumb goes down? Click. It's a map for all you people who love maps. Um, Over here in the top right, you have Jabesh Gilead. I'll just come all the way over here and just make it super awkward. Oh, cool, thanks. Um, question mark, because we're not entirely sure if that's 
the exact location of Jabesh Gilead. Um, but you can also see um, southwest down over to Gibeah, right above the Dead Sea to the, to the north of the Dead Sea. That's where Saul is. Um, Jabesh Gilead up there in the tribe of Manasseh's territory. Now, this, this tribe is the one that's being, or sorry, the city, Jabesh Gilead, is the one that's being besieged. And if that word sounds weird to you, what it means is the Ammonites, if we can go to the next slide real quick, please. Ryan, thank you. The Ammonites, who would be over to the right in that green area labeled Ammon, are the ones that are coming up to attack Jabesh Gilead. Now, what's, what's fascinating about this, too, is that Israel is surrounded by enemies on all sides. The Philistines, the Ammonites, um, they're, they're surrounded by their enemies constantly. And Jabesh Gilead, being high, far north of everyone else, very much on the fringes geographically, but also on the fringes in some other ways. If you recall our study in Judges, chapter 21, if you remember, we talked about the book of Judges like the spinning of a toilet bowl the water going down. Things just kept going in the same cycle of the people of God needing salvation, crying out to God. God gives them a savior. They're, they live in peace for a little while. Then they start sinning. God sends their enemies against them to enslave them. They cry out for a savior, and it just continues to spin in this circle. But it also gets worse. Things get really ugly in, in Judges um, as you continue. By Judges chapter 21, we don't even have an actual judge mentioned. Samson is long gone at this point. And in Judges 21, there is a certain Levite who travels to Gibeah, again, which is where um, Saul is. I don't think it's on this. Oh, it is over here on the very um, bottom left corner here above Jebus. So in Gibeah, Judges chapter 21, is where this Levite, um, had, who had brought his concubine, that being his sort of lesser kind of wife, and this concubine was violated all night long by the people of Gabeah just generations earlier. So mistreated was she that by the morning she was completely dead. The Levite then found her, and if you don't think the Bible's interesting um, or graphic, uh, the Levite then dismembers his concubine and sends all of the parts of her to the 12 tribes of Israel to say, look at the outrage of what's actually happened. This again happening in Gabeah. When we come to our passage this morning, we see Saul chopping up oxen and sending those pieces out to the 12 tribes. A little less graphic, but still gruesome, right? Can you imagine these messengers um, taking these pieces of oxen and in a bag perhaps and traveling all around here and all to the other tribes? You can go back to the other map again real quick, Brian, please. Thank you. Um, traveling all around to send this message that if you don't show up, this is what's going to happen to your oxen. Very interesting. It's very interesting how God has some things sort of continuing to run in a cycle. As Jabesh Gilead is besieged or there's an encampment of the hostiles around them, they say, hey, look, obviously we can't beat you. Let's make a treaty. Now, when you, when you see in Hebrew this idea of making a treaty, it's technically the word to cut a treaty. Right? It's almost like cutting a covenant, making a promise. And what's interesting is that Nahash, the Ammonite king, he says, we're not going to cut a treaty. If you want to live in peace with me, rather than cutting a treaty, you're going to cut out your eyes. Again, this is like a gruesome passage this morning, isn't it? Right? This is what really happened. He said, cut out your right eye. Because my goal is not simply to make you another vassal state that's going to pay taxes to me and make me rich. 
I want to bring disgrace on Israel. That's intense. Nahash is not just in it for the money. He's in it to bring shame and defeat on the people of God. So they respond in the only way they can. They say, okay, well, if that's our conditions, listen, we're not really into this whole gouging out our right eye situation. That's going to be really harmful for us, not only in wartime, but also in our farming and in everything else that we could do. It's going to really affect everything, and it sounds pretty violent. So they say, why don't you give us seven days, and if no one comes out to save us, then we'll, we'll go ahead and agree with you because that's all we can do. It's fascinating that when they say they make up this plan of seven days to look for a savior, they don't mention Saul, and perhaps more importantly, don't, they don't even mention the Lord. They don't say anything about maybe the Lord will raise someone up for us. They've forgotten that Saul has already been raised up for this very purpose, to save them from their enemies, right? Well, let's go to Saul then in verse 5. Verse 5 is Saul finds out this news of what's going on. Actually, verse 6, if you would. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. This rushing is going to sound familiar to you again in the book of Judges, right? Rushing of the Spirit. This is what happens with Samson. Samson gets a rush of the Holy Spirit, and, you know, he kills a a whole bunch of people with the jawbone of a donkey. He does these great feats of physical strength. Saul is not then strengthened in the same way as Samson here, but he, uh, he is given a Holy Spirit directive and empowerment to unify the people of God within the kingdom of God. So as he says, again, going to cut up these oxen, I'm going to deliver, you're going to send them all out to everybody and say, this is what's going to happen to your oxen if you don't obey, if you don't come out and fight for the people of Jabesh Gilead. The other thing about Jabesh Gilead, by the way, is that in the end of Judges, when that massive civil war happens of all the 11 tribes going against Benjamin, Jabesh Gilead is specifically mentioned as a city from whom no soldiers came out to battle. And they're called out for it. They said, who was it that didn't send any soldiers? And they say, it was Jabesh Gilead. And they send soldiers there to go kill everybody. So not only is Jabesh Gilead suffering from being kind of further removed from all the action happening down south, they're more further removed spiritually and relationally. They're disunified with the rest of the people of God. So naturally, their plan is, we'll just give up. Well, Saul says, hey, look, I'm going to do something about this. We're going to change the circumstances here. He has this amazing line, one of the best things that Saul says. Not that there's a lot of things to choose from. But he says in verse 9, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. It's a wonder we don't have a bunch of movies being made about the book of 1 Samuel because that would have been a great line in the line of Braveheart and Gladiator and others. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. So the men of Jabesh said, and this is presumably, they were saying it to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. This is fascinating in the Hebrew. We translate it in English that we're going to give ourselves up to you. But it could also be translated, it's very closely related to the same phrase that means we'll march out against you in war. So they could very well be leaving this ambiguous to say, hey, why don't you expect us to surrender tomorrow? That way you can drop your guard a little bit. And when that happens, what we're actually going to do is march out in full force. And in full force, they indeed march. 
It's pointed out that 330,000 soldiers are joined together. When he mustered them at Bezek, that is Saul, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. So this work of the Spirit unifying God's people in a very miraculous and rather impressive way. Again, how easy it would have been for all these other tribes and all these other cities to just say, man, let Jabesh Gilead get what's coming to them. Let's just get rid of those guys. We don't like them anyway. They don't come out to help us. Saul is empowered by the Spirit to draw them all together. And he does so fascinatingly in verse 7, if you would look at that. What is it that came upon every person? The dread of the Lord. Pretty cool that it doesn't say the dread of Saul. It wasn't really Saul that was doing this. It was the dread or the fear of God that was in their hearts that drew them to unity. It's an interesting tactic to kind of put into today's context. You have, let's imagine, a very divided church or a divided family, and you say, well, what this family really needs is some good old-fashioned fear. It doesn't seem like it would be too effective in 2023, but it is certainly effective in this context, isn't it? And perhaps it is something we need to consider a little bit more. When we come to the kingdom renewal then in this section, we see Saul uh, have an opportunity to really stick it to the guys who didn't want him to be king. There were plenty of people that were on Saul's side that were saying, let's get rid of these guys that said, Saul's not going to reign over us. He's not going to be able to help us. Let's just kill him. But again, Saul says something really great. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. It's good leadership words, aren't they? Samuel then comes up and says, let's renew the kingdom. Let's rebuild. Let's remind ourselves of what we are really under. We are under the very God of creation, our true king. And we'll see in chapter 12 more of his message there. But this place, Gilgal, is also very important. This was in Joshua chapter 4, where Israel made their first encampment on the other side of the Jordan. After coming out of their wilderness wanderings, this is where they encamped. This is where they started making plans for the kingdom. So it's a perfect place for them to hit refresh, as it were, and call them to remember the origin of the kingdom. What about for us? This is a really great story. And again, if 1 Samuel just ended with chapter 11, happy ending. They all lived happily ever after. And it gets worse. But for us, is there the same call for us to live in unity within the kingdom of God today? I think obviously there is. And I think that one of the big messages from this story is that the people of God can't fully experience spiritual renewal apart from each other. We must live in unity within the kingdom of God with each other. This may be just simply a fact of order of events. There was a splintering and a division within Israel in so many different ways. Saul's then purpose as the leader, as the one led by the Holy Spirit as well, is to unify the people. Again, really, really interesting. Saul isn't mentioned in here as accomplishing any great feat on his own. Had a powerful message. It was a word from the Lord, ultimately. That no, God's people will be unified. That is God's intention. And those who do not unify will not be a part of God's people. The people of God can't fully experience spiritual renewal apart from each other. Brian, we can take the map down now if you don't mind. Thank you. Well, let's consider the problem then. I wonder 
if you could put yourself in a normal everyday scenario that you experience, perhaps in your office and your home and your community, wherever it might be where you function among other people. We all do that. We do it right now, right? We're, we're functioning around other people. But for the most part, we have a different group of people that we function around. I wonder what it would be like if another person that you could think of in your mind right now took on the whole task of everyone else around them, sought to make the mission of the group their singular mission and them being the only ones to accomplish it. If it's a particular task in the office space where different skills are required, can you imagine one person saying, oh, those skills that are needed to create this form or to um, address this certain kind of people or whatever it might be, can you imagine one person just saying, I don't need any of those, I think I can handle this all by myself. And if you can imagine that person, then I think you can imagine in many ways the typical American Christian. Because we function in our faith so often under this big word that Americans really love, the privatization my faith is a private thing. Now, maybe we don't say that. Maybe we say, hey, look, you see me sitting in the pink chairs this morning. I know my faith is not private. I am here declaring my faith by attending church. Praise God. That's great. But what about the rest of the week? What does the rest of the week look like for you when it comes to functioning around the people of God? See, the problem that I think is raised in this passage is that isolation invites enslavement. Jabesh Gilead was isolated, not only geographically, but spiritually and relationally, from both God and his people. And it was certainly only a matter of time before their enemies found that out and decided to make their attack. If you're reading in the reading plan this past week, we read Proverbs chapter 18, which begins with, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. That one really stuck with me. Because unlike a lot of circumstances that we find ourselves in in workplaces, I spend a lot of time by myself, sitting on the round table over there by the front door, just hoping somebody will come visit me. I'm not that pathetic, mostly. But I spend a lot of time by myself. And it would be very easy for me to make that alone time an isolating kind of time. And the Proverbs tell us that whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. That is, he has set apart the desire of God and of his people, and he is functioning only within his own desire. And that same seeking of his own desire, the proverb, uh, oh my goodness, um, the, the writer says that he is the one who also breaks out against all sound judgment. Sorry, I couldn't think of um, Solomon's name there. He breaks out against all sound judgment. That is, that the person who is confronted about their isolation goes, I'm not isolated, what's wrong with you? Just immediately bites back against it. That's not exactly what we saw the people of Jabesh Gilead do, but we did see them respond in hopelessness. We don't know what we're going to do. Give us seven days. We need seven days at least to try to find somebody to help us out. Because we've only been seeking our own desire. We've only been living autonomously apart from the rest of God's people. Jabesh Gilead's treaty that they offer to make with Nahash would completely negate their covenant with the Lord, by the way. In order to live under God as your true sovereign, you cannot be in a treaty with yet another sovereign who can tell you other things to do. 
This reminds me of Jesus' words in regards to loving God and loving money. He says, you can't serve two masters. It's impossible, particularly when those two masters are opposed to each other. They would be negating the covenant that the Lord made with them to make a treaty with Nahash. Here's what's perhaps the most interesting thing about Nahash. And it's another Hebrew thing. I know we've been Hebrew heavy here, but you got to hear this. Nahash in Hebrew is the same word for serpent. Is that on purpose or by accident, people? That's a fascinating note to make in this story. That it is, in one sense, the serpent who is going after the isolated people of God. Can you apply that? (laughs) Who is the serpent? I mean, this is the enemy of God, the enemy of God's people, Satan himself. Now, I don't think that this is Satan inhabiting Nahash, but boy, this is a very pointed thing to notice that it is, in fact, a man whose name means the serpent who is trying to strike at God's people in isolation. Spiritual opposition reveals our need for unity. Otherwise, we face enslavement. And not a treaty. Remember, Jabesh Gilead, they said, hey, maybe we can solve this peacefully with words. Let's see if we can make a deal with Nahash, the serpent, by the way, in a way that benefits both of us. And Nahash is like, I want you shamed. I want your right eye gouged out. By the way, that gouging out of the right eye is not just a, a, a symbol. This would have been something that was done um, often by different countries that would take over different places. They would ask that the right eye be gouged out or they would demand it more so because it would render them completely ineffective in battle. Again, can you apply this yet, church? Living in isolation apart from God's people with a real enemy that you face daily who would love for you to be enslaved to sin. He would like to render you useless. How? Well, back in our story, gouging out the right eye, which again, we found out just recently, only about 10% of the population today is left-handed. So most, people, most of these soldiers would have been right-handed, so they would be holding their shield up with their left hand, and it would be covering about half of their face. So they would use their right eye to see where they were going. They would use their right eye to aim an arrow with a bow. They would be completely ineffective in battle at this point. Because not only would it affect the way you've learned warfare, but it would also dramatically affect your depth perception. Gouging out your right eye was not only something that would render you completely ineffective, but it would bring shame on your entire people. And this is what spiritual opposition seeks to do. Divided, the church is rendered useless. We might as well gouge out our right eye because we're about that effective when we try to live our Christian life on our own. Let's consider some of the effects of isolation on your spiritual life from this passage. The first one comes from the very beginning of our passage. You see what happened to Jabesh Gilead in the beginning? Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Again, to besiege is to completely surround them with hostile intent. They're surrounded. They're locked in. There's nothing that can be done. When we live in isolation from God and particularly from his people as well in this context, we're setting ourselves up to be open to besiegement. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7, when Cain offers a poor sacrifice to God, God responds to him graciously with a warning. Sin is at the door. 
and its desire is to rule over you, but you must overcome it. What sin might be at the door of your hearts this morning, Christian? Maybe something that is of immorality. It may just be in doctrinal error, something that you're believing and trusting in that is not biblical, perhaps. But what is knocking on your door? What is it that could very easily besiege your life and lock you in from all sides? Again, remember the map. The, the Philistines are to the south and to the northwest. The Ammonites are there. They are, Israel is surrounded by their enemies, in large part due to the fact that they are not unified. Again, this is not a, hey, let's all link arms and sing kumbaya, and if we can just kind of you know, get in the right mindset, then all of our problems will be solved. The problem with isolation is not that you're missing the warm fuzzies of all your friends. The problem with isolation is you're living in opposition to God's plan for you. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. So we're open to besiegement. Secondly, we have ineffective living. Just as those eyes were going to be gouged out if Jabesh Gilead didn't find a savior, the Christian who isolates himself suffers from lost vision. How are we going to function as a body if we don't know what's actually going on with each other? Again, Sunday morning, please come to worship. Come, join together, greet one another, uh, worship, lift up your voices, hear the word of God, all those kinds of things. But what about the rest of your week? Is there a place for you to connect with brothers and sisters in Christ? The isolation is not just in the matter of my Bible study time and my prayer time, but it's also looking at my job, my house, my family, all those kinds of things. And certainly, your responsibility for your family and your job are unique to you. But do you know that you have this great resource called the church that is meant to walk alongside you in these things? Ineffective living, lost vision. Thirdly, we can find ourselves in a fog of forgetfulness. David mentioned something last week about my alliteration, so I decided to make sure I had something in there. Fog of forgetfulness. The Lord, a king, Jabesh Gilead doesn't mention any of those two things, anything about those two things. They say, we're going to look around for seven days, we're going to try to find somebody who can help us out. Is it not so easy for us to feel in our isolation that there is no one to help us? Very natural feeling. It's a very natural thing then to throw a pity party for ourselves and say, Lord, why have you left me alone in all of this when in fact we have isolated ourselves so much of the time? And, and I know, church, there's, there are circumstances, there are situations in life in which we find ourselves isolated, that we are, are, are unable to stop these kinds of things from happening. That's not, I think, what this passage is talking about and not what I'm talking about either. I think it is the mindset of individualism that is such an American value that has poisoned the church. We need to be aware of it in our own lives. We need to take action. Lest we be open to besiegement, we experience ineffective living, or we find ourselves in a fog of forgetfulness, not remembering that Christ, one of his great means of grace in your life, is the fellowship of other believers. Yes, go to his word. Yes, go to prayer. Go to your brothers and sisters as well. This is by God's design. So in isolation, do you ever forget where to turn for help? Because I know I do. Fourthly, we may also suffer distance from the Lord. And perhaps most importantly, of course, 
Jabesh Gilead again had gone to their enemy and said, look, let's make a treaty. Let's find a way for us both to mutually benefit from this relationship. If we are not living in unity with our brothers and sisters in the church, we are going to look for that outside of the church. And the truth of that is, while there are people who do good things and they can be nice neighbors and all those things are good, ultimately, if we are allying ourselves with the world, we're allying ourselves with something that's coming to an end. Whereas we ought to ally ourselves with the kingdom of God that will last forever. Distance from the Lord. Perhaps the greatest thing we should be worried about in this context. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 19 through 20. Paul is talking about sexual immorality within the church. But at the end he says the reason that you need to be aware of this problem and fight against it is because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know for how many years I read that and said, that's right, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Me. And then, again, Greek and Hebrew, change your life. In the Greek, that use plural. It's you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit indwells individual believers. But Paul's understanding of the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the greater work of the Holy Spirit, is when believers dwell in unity together. So are you doing that? Does that mark your life? Because there's another warning in this passage about disunity. And it comes from this seemingly unnecessary comment about who sent how many people in verse 8. The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Did you notice that division that was made, Israel and Judah? Did perhaps that feel a little bit too early for 1 Samuel? Because this is what happens when Rehoboam becomes king and the kingdom is torn asunder and Judah becomes the southern kingdom and Israel becomes the northern kingdom. And for the whole book of the prophets, they just clash and argue and never get along. Seems that the author is already pointing out to us the fact that there is a division already amongst these tribes that's going on. And it's going to result in something very ugly. It's pointing to a future state where the people of God not only spiritually and idealistically and relationally live divided from each other, but in an official capacity have separated themselves with physical borders to make sure you cannot come to my side and I can't go to your side. So in verse 4, when the people of Gabeah heard the news of what was going on in Jabesh Gilead, they wept aloud. They had nothing else to do. They had nothing else to hope. They knew Jabesh Gilead was completely isolated, and their thoughts were there was no salvation for them. But then Saul does two very right things, doesn't he? Let's get back to what he does. Remember I said he said some good stuff in here. The first thing that he did right was unify God's people. And he did that with a picture of the dread of the Lord. He didn't say that this is what God desires to do. God wants to completely decimate all your cattle and everything that you need in order to survive. But what he said was is that if you do not unify, then this is what's going to happen. The separating of the oxen and the sending of the pieces out to the 12 tribes was a gruesome picture of the end of God's people if they reject unity and choose isolation. His illustration was powerful. Your livelihood is at stake if you do not fight. Church, so is yours. 
And I don't mean particularly your job and your home and your resources, but spiritually, the resources that we have in Christ. How can we, who claim to love Christ, live in ways that show we do not love those whom Christ loves? We cannot continue in that kind of isolation and call ourselves the people of God or live under the kingdom of God. So Saul does this first right thing. He unifies. The second thing he does is he led with Samuel with the renewal of the kingdom of God. And in that renewal of the kingdom, he didn't say, now is when I finally get what I want. Revenge on those guys who didn't want me to be king. The renewal of the kingdom of God means mercy for rebels. It is, again, that word renew, which can sometimes mean to repair. It is the putting back together of God's people, which is precisely what Christ has done at the cross. Christ has accomplished these things. His body was torn and broken. And it is the message of his broken body that unifies God's people. It is what he suffered at the cross. John 12, 32, Jesus says, When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. It is the lifting up of the message of the cross that unifies God's people. That is the starting point. And it is not conditional based on socioeconomic standing or uh, tribe or wherever we came from or any other condition. It is the fact that the human condition of sinfulness and the punishment for that sin that unifies us at the cross. Our need for salvation. Just as Israel unifies and renews at Gilgal, so we must come to the cross again and again in order to do so. Because it is at the cross that Christ faced the surrounding enemies of his people and sent them away divided. Did you notice that at the end of the battle? In verse 11, In three companies he separated his soldiers, Saul did, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Last sentence, super cool. Those who who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. When God's people gather together and are one, the enemies of God's people, namely Satan himself, because we do not war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, the enemies of God and of his people are scattered such that no two were left together. I, I like this. He, he, in one sense, unammonitized everybody. He took away their peoplehood in this defeat. And so it is that Christ has so wounded Satan that though he knocks at your door, he knocks with false promises, and out of desperation to try to pull you down. But if you are in Christ, you are among those who say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that just as Saul said, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Christ has provided salvation for us. He has claimed the victory over our enemy. And rather than executing his people who would reject his kingship, executing those who would say, hey, thank you very much for saving me. I'd like to go back to my isolation. Rather than rejecting them, he calls them to himself. Rather than executing them, the people who would reject his kingship, he wins them over by grace. So church, have you isolated yourself today? Would you marvel at the grace of Christ that calls you back? calls you back amongst the people of God. That calls you back not because, hey, these people are really nice and they're perfect and they'll never disappoint you. But Christ is really nice and perfect and he will never disappoint you. 
And it is amongst the people of God that we get the fuller picture of that kind of grace. To come out of isolation is the way to respond to the call to unity. The church is the, are those who are called and collected, no longer to seek their own desires, as the Proverbs warn, but rather to be equipped for unity and renewed by the work of the Spirit. So remember, we had those things, those, those four things that came out of isolation. So let's consider how Christ equips us and undoes the effect of isolation in our spiritual lives. First of all, if we are isolated, we're open to besiegement. We're open to attack. But Colossians 3.3 tells us that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3. When it comes to ineffective living and loss of sight, 1 Peter chapter 7, chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8 have this amazing list of what our Christian character must include if Christ is indeed among us, if his spirit is indeed working in us. He says in 1 Peter, towards the end of that list, that we, we should add to all of these characteristics brotherly affection. You can't do that if you're not unified with the body of Christ. You can't have brotherly affection if you don't know the brothers to whom you must be affectionate, the brothers and sisters. And Peter then says, if you have these things, they keep you from being ineffective. You don't need to worry about ineffective living in Christ if you have brotherly affection. It's not the whole of it, but that is a huge part of it, isn't it? It is our unity together that keeps us from being, specifically, Peter says, ineffective. What about this fog of forgetfulness? that we're warned of in this passage, that looking all around for salvation, looking for help in all the wrong places, of course. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 answers this question. 23, rather, 23 to 25. Hear what he says there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see the day drawing near? You may not see it entirely with your eyes, but you know we've gone one day to the next, and we're closer to the day that Christ will return. And we must then stir one another up to love and good works by reminding them of the truth of the gospel. In our fog of forgetfulness, let us be those who are ever reminders to each other that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So live in light of that. What about our distance from the Lord? That great danger. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says that you who were once afar off, all of you, you, all of you, have been brought near because of the blood of Christ. And one of the ways that we are reassured of our nearness to Christ is through our nearness to each other. Again, not in a sappy emotionalism, but rather in a recognition that all my week, all my days at work, all the troubles that I face, when I gather together on Sunday morning and see all of your faces, I am immediately reminded, I'm not in this alone. And I need more of that reminder Sunday morning's great. It's my favorite day of the week. But I need more of that in my own life. I think we all do. To remind us that we are not far off from God. But just as Christ sends his spirit to unify and renew his people, so we then will walk out our life in him together. 
It's the only way to truly do it. So let's see what the Spirit of Christ will do if we open ourselves up to deeper unity. And I'm not saying that right now we're going to you know, do something radical and dramatic, but rather what I'd call you to is take some kind of baby step. Because I am a firm believer that spiritual growth happens one degree of glory to the next. And that degree most often for me has been baby steps. It's been little things. It's been me saying, this week I'm going to text somebody who I know from church and ask them how I can pray for them and tell them how they can pray for me. Could you do that with one person this week perhaps? Or maybe make a phone call. Maybe meet them for coffee. Pray with someone after church. Pray with someone on a Thursday afternoon. Send them a letter. I don't know what it might be for you that, that could excite you, that could say, this is the way I would love to express my unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ. But I would implore you, as the day draws nearer, let us be all the more prepared by being unified together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in our isolating tendencies, you call us out amongst each other not to embarrass us, not to shine a spotlight, but just to recognize that we all struggle with these tendencies. There's a multitude of reasons that we would like to just retreat back to our own fortress of solitude. Not to hear from anyone and not to say anything to anyone. Lord, this is not how you've designed your church. You've designed us to be one body. Would you help us to walk in that this week? Would you show us ways that we could take baby steps into that? Sending a text message, perhaps. Or, or even, even if we don't communicate with somebody, just knowing that, hey, this person needs prayer, and maybe there's something like a prayer calendar on the back white table I could pick up. I don't know. Maybe there is. Lord, we thank you. that You have not left us as orphans, and you have reminded us of your presence and reminded us of the goodness of your work in Christ, because we are together. Lord, there may be a day that we don't get to experience the kind of togetherness that's available to us today. May we not meet that day with regret. May we instead be encouraged and built up together. For your sake, we ask it, Lord, that Christ may be exalted and magnified in all things. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.